0: You're listening to Oh No Lick Class.
1: Mostly dead authors. Fresh takes.
0: Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Ono oh Lit Class, the podcast that got kicked out of the library for screaming at the books. I'm Megan. You fucking books! <laughs> yep, just like that. You fucking dumbass! 11.5! <laughs> you monsters. I'm RJ. He is RJ.
1: Dewey Decimal died <laughs> for this!
0: The Dewey Decimal system can get fucked, but that's another story for another day, because on this episode... Lord help us, we're back on our Brontes.
1: You know what they say, Meg.
0: What do they say?
1: If a Bronte bucks you off. You just gotta y- get
0: back on. Yep. Yeah, nope, that's the thing. That's what they say. We're talking about Emily Bronte's one and only novel, Wuthering Heights.
1: She's the hot Bronte. Maybe.
0: That Maybe. I don't know. that.
1: Her and Anne, they can find it out.
0: <laughs> I guess. It's
1: definitely not Charlotte.
0: There's a painting of the three of them, and they look like the fucking children of the corn.
1: Yeah, Anne got something going on.
0: It's a painting!
1: Yeah, it is. How many paintings of you do you have?
0: I get How many paintings are there review. Three. What? Yep. Well, are they, <laughs> yeah, in hiding, like the picture of Dorian Gray, is that how you're drawing your strength from? Maybe. Well, before we get to that, we want to say thank you to our- Wait! Right?
1: You're going to say thank you.
0: Yeah, to our patrons, because they help make this show happen.
1: Read it like you're an ice cream salesman on an ice cream truck selling ice cream to children.
0: What? Oh. Here comes the ice cream man. Ice cream man. Ice cream. Because that's what they do. They yell out ice cream. Ice cream. We've got Alex. I want. Yeah, we got Alex. Well, I'm sorry. We've got Alexander, Ariel at Ariel Teague, Melina, Chris at Play Comics. No. No? Well, um, let me check in the back. I think I got some Not Alone Podcast at Not Alone Pod. Uh, We got some Tanner, Janet, Jen some Ben my
1: dog really wants some ice cream
0: that will kill your dog
1: the is Jen he's... gonna kill my dog no no Jen, I'll take Jen, some Jen Jen
0: won't kill your dog neither will Ben at KNSJM. Dirk damn it might kill your dog he's at killing you guy
1: I'll take that then <laughs> my dog's hungry
0: well, um... Ice
1: cream or human flesh? <laughs> Completely interchangeable. Isn't that right, Fido?
0: Oh, God. I don't like where this is going, so... You're, you're not going to also have Amy, Aaron, Katie, Karen, Sarah, Lucas, and Kiki. Kiki? Kiki, don't do that.
1: Kiki like the boots?
0: I'm going to drive away now. Thank you for your continued patronage and support! This episode, we're back in my comfort zone. Namely, Victorian... British lit and so I read Wuthering Heights in I think it was my sophomore year of college at that point like Jane Eyre was freshman year and then my professor my Britley professor was like all right we're getting into the heavy Brontes now because Emily is unfortunately not the single sole sane Bronte that would be Anne in fact depending on your sources as I guess we'll find out she might have been the nuttiest Bronte did you have to read Wuthering Heights? Nope course not why would you have <laughs> you got uh keith quiff it does yes yeah yeah you got his name right i don't know if you were going for a joke there and yet but you said nah. his name properly Keith quiff. yeah yeah that's what you know about it yep okay uh well what do you know about emily bronte
1: she's a hot bronte <laughs> we've
0: established <laughs> that sort of <laughs> i don't
1: let her buck me anytime i get right back on uh, i don't want to hold him. Uh, I know when to fold them. Yeah. And I know when I, to wish, get... I
0: wish I knew when to walk away.
1: So, Emily Jane Air Bronte. <laughs>
0: yeah, what about her?
1: Well, she actually doesn't have Air in her name, but it is Jane, but yeah. As we're going to horn these Brontes, not very inventive with their name, so.
0: Dude, we do know that, and we've, I mean, we touched upon the Brontes before when we did Jane Eyre back in, like, Episode three. Yep, our third episode, approximately 10,000 years ago, and we know that the the sisters all wrote together under the names of Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell.
1: Correct. Yes. They did not write together, though.
0: No, not, like, in a circle as friends.
1: Not with Charlotte. The other two did.
0: Ah, what well, makes Charlotte different?
1: Oh, well, we'll talk about that. Okay, fine. So, Emily Jane, maybe Air Bronte, call her EJ.
0: I mean, you can.
1: Yeah, she was born July 30th, 1818 and died the 19th of December, 1848. She is, of course, known as one of the Olsen twins. There's Mary-Kate Ashley and Emily Bronte. <laughs> oh, that's Elizabeth Olsen.
0: Busting out that A material. Never mind. Anne is the Elizabeth Olsen of the Brontes. So, like, that doesn't even work.
1: (laughs) It's close enough, to be honest. I guess. You see, we discussed all this way back on the third episode when we discussed Branwell, Bronte's older sister, Charlotte Bronte, and the rest of the Bronte clan. So, Emily was the third eldest out of the group, being born after Charlotte and brother Branwell. Emily Jane, not EJ. No. Emily Jane, she's MJ.
0: Oh, yeah, alright, I'll allow it.
1: She was born in Thornton Market Street. It's not a literal street. The name of the town was Thornton Market Street.
0: Wait, okay. I thought, see, I thought you were going to say, like, she was just literally birthed in the middle of the street, and I'd be like, okay, sure, times were wild back then, but that was just the name of the town they lived in. Yep. That's weird.
1: Whatever. That's the English for you. True. Her mom was Maria Branwell, and her dad was Patrick Bronte. Her dad was a parish priest, and mom was a homemaker and just loved naming people after herself. She gave Branwell her maiden name to her son as a first name, and there was another Bronte sister named Maria who died in childhood, so no one really talks about her. But in short, Mama Bronte was the real problem with this whole uh, naming shenanigans.
0: Oh God, and we're gonna we're gonna see we're gonna see some of that in this book.
1: Anyway, Mama Bronte was not long for this world when Emily was three. Mama Bronte died of cancer. Having a household full of kids. Daddy Bronte needed to do something with all of them, so he sent Charlotte, Maria, and Elizabeth off to clergy's daughter school at Cowan. This was the school that Charlotte wrote about in Jane Eyre, a place of abuse and unrest. Right. Lucky for Emily, she was three at the time, so she was not immediately sent away. However, when she turned six, she was sent to join her sisters. Within months of her arriving, there was a typhoid epidemic, and the sisters were brought home. Unfortunately, Maria and Elizabeth contracted typhoid before making it home. Elizabeth died shortly after returning home, perhaps developing the Burke, tuberculosis, on top of everything else.
0: Always with the Burke.
1: Rip Lizzie. You should have known you were a goner when you read the script, and they only cast three Bronte sisters, and you weren't one of them. So, after the death of Elizabeth, Daddy Bronte did not want to send his three daughters and son away to school again. So the Because three they of,
0: might come back dead.
1: So, the three of them were educated at home by Elizabeth Branwell, Mama Bronte's sister. I know, this is all terribly confusing. There's two Marias, two Elizabeths, three Branwells.
0: That's a lot of Branwells. That's an excess of Branwells.
1: And this is why so many family narratives are fucked to shit. (laughs) Give unique names.
0: Like Gainsvort. (laughs)
1: Gainsvort. Went to Gainsvort Street or whatever it was.
0: Good old Gainsvort.
1: And this brings us to this week's episode of Parenting with RJ, a subsidiary of Financing with RJ, which is a subsidiary of RJ Hot Takes, Inc.,
0: thought it was like something LLC, like you, you already changed the company name. You gotta
1: keep it fresh. Now this week's Parenting with RJ is brought to us by George Foreman, the man and not the grill. You well, might not know this about the former heavyweight champ.
0: And who has nothing to do with anything going on in this episode.
1: And grill, actually, you know what, Katie Nolan, they actually did this last week and I'm really angry that they stole my bit. Because <laughs> I was listening today, I'm like, oh shit, that's my bit this week. Yeah, I know, it's really can't
0: Katie Nolan stole your bit
1: i think she was on my computer Uh, you might not know this about former heavyweight champ and grill connoisseur george foreman but he has 12 children one child for every round in a heavyweight boxing match
0: wait he really has 12 like i know the thing about the naming stuff but he has 12 fucking kids
1: one for every round in a heavyweight boxing match that's a lot of children so the children are named in no particular order george foreman jr george foreman the third George Foreman the fourth. That's
0: not how that works. George
1: Foreman the fifth.
0: That's not how that works.
1: George Foreman the sixth. Oh, but here, let's really mix it up. Georgetta Foreman. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's only half the kids.
1: My fellow countrymen and countrywomen, parents of all creeds, please, I implore you, stop this madness. I'm told we're inventive, ingenuitive,
0: ingenuitive,
1: ingenious. I don't know. (laughs) A wise people, let us show the world. Let's start making great names again. Parents remember RJ's acronym for baby making. Oh no. Punch. What? Procreate. Uniquely name. Any guess what the CH is? I really don't want to know. Consider Harambe. Topical. Now, procreate.
0: The... I don't really think you need to explain.
1: Make the damn crotch root happen in whatever way you see fit. I think the tried and true method is P and V, but there are other ways. Uniquely name. Don't name your kids after you or your relatives within two generations of them. And lastly, consider Harambe.
0: Consider him.
1: In short, remember, if you do a shitty job raising your kids, a sweet, innocent gorilla may die for your shitty parenting sins. So I'm gonna punch out of this bit.
0: I'm gonna punch you in the head. Good fucking God. (laughs) I
1: was happy when I finally figured out what CH could
0: be. (laughs) That's not how you do an acronym. Can we please talk about Emily Bronte for the love of God? So back to
1: Emily and the other motley Bronte crew. The siblings would sit around and read and debate about stuff like Sir Walter Scott and Byron Shelley. Emily in particular was known as an animal lover and would wander the, country, the countryside.
0: <laughs> She'd wander that countryside <laughs> just up and down.
1: It's yeah, good I went with that foul and not the other one. Yeah. Making all sorts of friends with stray dogs and cats she found along the way.
0: Yeah. Hold on to that trivia nugget. Keep that locked tight in your hearts and minds.
1: In their at home downtime, the Bronte kids would write stories about fictional worlds they created, like Angria, which was populated with some of Branwell's toy soldiers. Aww. Charlotte Bronte said of the stories they all came up with, quote, very strange ones, end quote. <laughs> Eventually, Emily and Anne, the youngest of the Bronte's, broke away from the writing of Angria and instead created a new land to build, Gondel. Apparently, Gondol was a mythical island which housed romantic outlaws, noble savages, and other such well-rounded characters. Unfortunately, barely any of the writings still exist, and it's only referenced in some diary entries that have avoided the fate of being lost to time or fire. Being a bit of a dynamic duo, Emily and Anne had a goal of opening a school of their own, but neither had a formal education as of yet. Emily, being the older of the two, was sent away to get that formal education at Row Head Girls School, where Charlotte was a teacher. However, Emily was quick to wash out of school. Charlotte said of her sister, quote, Liberty was the breath of Emily's nostrils. Without it, she perished. The change from her own home to a school and from her own very noiseless, very secluded, but unrestricted and unartificial mode of life to one of disciplined routine, though under the kindest is. Auspicious, auspicious? Auspicious?
0: Aus, auspice, auspices?
1: No, it's not auspices.
0: Auspices.
1: Though under the kindest auspices was what she failed in enduring.
0: Do you know what auspices means? Because I don't.
1: Like the kindest of, I think, like hard times, yeah? I'll look it up. Let's see.
0: Yeah. You can't just be saying words be like, yes, of course, the kindest auspices. A divine or prophetic token. That doesn't Asp- help at all.
1: Auspicious.
0: Auspices. Auspices. Auspices.
1: Under the kindest of auspices...
0: Which we still don't understand what that means.
1: ...was what she failed in enduring. I felt in my heart she would die if she did not go home. And with this conviction, obtained her recall. Upon returning home, and the goal still being for Emily and Anne to open a school of their own, Anne took Emily's place at the school to get that formal education. Eventually, Emily, MJ cobbled together enough knowledge and experience from everyone around her and landed a gig as a teacher at Law Hill School in Halifax in 1839 when she was 20. Again, the whole school environment did not suit Emily well, and she left the job about seven months later. Now, to be fair, the gig apparently was a 17-hour workday, which is a bit much.
0: Just a little.
1: At this point, she returned home again and became, this is what they called her, quote, a stay-at-home daughter.
0: (laughs) It's a good gig if you can get it.
1: It's a sweet gig if you can swing it. Thanks, Meg. Always still in my line.
0: I'm quicker on the draw than you. That's not my fault.
1: She did a lot of domestic duties, and when she had time, she played the piano and taught herself German. Not to be deterred permanently, Emily, now 24, went with Charlotte to Brussels to attend a girls' academy to hone her German and French with the hopes of still opening a school of her own.
0: Still hanging on to that dream.
1: Emily pegged herself to be an outcast in Brussels immediately when being told to adopt the Brussels fashion and culture, you know, the whole "one in Rome thing, she bluntly replied, I wish to be as God made me, which was assuredly not to be a Brussellian. That
0: seems sort of unnecessary.
1: The headmaster at the school Emily was at said of her, She should have been a man, a great navigator. Her powerful reason would have deduced new spheres of discovery from the knowledge of the old. And her strong, imperious will would never have been daunted by opposition or difficulty, never have given way but with life. She had a head for logic and a capability of argument unusual in a man and rarer indeed in a woman. Impairing this gift was her stubborn tenacity, a will which rendered her obtuse to all reasoning where her own wishes or her own sense of right was concerned.
0: Gosh, she could have just been so great at things if she only had a penis darn
1: (sighs) two years later and the sisters attempted to open their own school and they failed to attract any students womp womp this gave emily time to go through her old poems about gondol that she had written over the prior years she began to rewrite the poems in a new notebook and while anne and emily would read their poems about gondol to each other having embarked on the world building together charlotte was not part of the duo so when charlotte found the notebook of poems and told emily she should publish them Emily felt hurt and betrayed that her privacy had been violated by Charlotte. Eventually, the three kissed and made up. It was a pretty sexy kiss. Oh,
0: gross.
1: Because those Bronte girls, let me tell you something.
0: Okay, nope, moving on.
1: The three published a book of poems titled Poems.
0: I mean, you know what? It's, it, it is what it is. He calls and them as you see them.
1: They assumed the pen names Currer, Ellis, and Acton Bell, preserving their initials. Now, it might be the lackluster title... It might be they had no prior publications. Who knows why? But after several months, they managed to sell two copies. Fuck, man. There were three of them.
0: (laughs) One of them didn't believe in it enough to even buy one. (laughs) Uh, Who
1: didn't buy their own (laughs) damned book?
0: Bet it was Anne.
1: Hey, one of the two book buyers did actually write them to get their autograph. Aww. So there's that. Okay. And actually, despite the horrific commercial failure, at least one critic was very fond of Emily's writing, saying... Ellis possesses a fine, quaint spirit and an evident power of wing that may reach heights not here attempted. This episode, also very importantly, did not dissuade Emily from publishing, as at the age of 29 in 1847, she published her only novel, Wuthering Heights, under the name Ellis Bell. It was not until three years later and after her death that her own name appeared on the commercial edition of the novel. The book initially received mixed reviews. The negative reviews focused on the narrative style and (laughs) structure. Mixed
0: reviews is putting it mildly. People did not know what the fuck to do with this book.
1: Oh, that's not true. The uh, negative reviews focused on the narrative style and the structure of the novel. The positive reviews harked on the use of language, imagery, and sexual passion.
0: But they all, because I read a bunch of these too, the theming across all of them was this is indeed a strange book, like how you just said about the about the Bronte stories. Oh, they were very strange stories. So whether the reviews were positive or negative, like whether they liked it or hated it, they were all just like some weird shit, man.
1: Oh, well, compared to other Victorian novels, this book had an unusually stark depiction of mental health and physical cruelty. It's true, and it pushed the bounds of gender inequality, social class, morality, religiosity, and hypocrisy. A English poet. Dante Gabriel Rossetti, said of the book, quote, A fiend of a book. An incredible monster. The action is laid in hell. Only, it seems, places and people have English names there.
0: Yeah, that's fair. In the end, the
1: novel was a huge success. Unfortunately, though, Emily never got to see any of the success. Less than a year later, she died on December 19th, 1848, at the age of 30. A few months before her death, her brother Branwell died. At the rainy funeral, Emily is said to have contracted what would become tuberculosis. While she may have had a fighting chance, biographers point out that not only was the weather absolute shit that winter, the Bronte home was at best unsanitary, Emily refused medical treatment, but also the family's drinking water was contaminated. What? By runoff from the churches graveyard
0: oh my god they were drinking dead people water
1: yep her dead brother's body juice literally helped kill ew, poor ew, emily
0: Ew! oh my god how did we not talk about this before rip emily oh ah.
1: you should have passed on the brother juice
0: dude maybe is that why they all fucking died but charlotte the highlander bronte that she just absorbed all of her dead siblings essence in the water
1: get some kirkland water oh my god that shit's a steal <laughs> Charlotte wrote of Emily towards the end, She grows daily weaker. The physician's opinion was expressed too obscurely to be of use. He sent some medicine which she would not take. Moments so dark as these I have never known. I pray for God's support to us all. To make matters sadder, Emily's last words were to her sister Charlotte, quote, If you will send for the doctor, I'll see him now. She died within an hour.
0: I guess now I finally feel crappy enough to take that doctor's advice. Oh, no. Jeez. So
1: there was a letter found in which Emily made a mention of a second manuscript beginning to take shape, but no such manuscript was ever found. Biographers do not know if it was still so early on that there wasn't really anything written, or if it was lost, or maybe that it was burned after her death. So the thing about Emily, everything we tend to know about her, is passed through charlotte oh
0: yes it has been very carefully curated by charlotte
1: correct so much in fact that Wuthering heights itself was edited by charlotte as it was changed by charlotte
0: yeah the the second edition of it when it came out was after emily died and charlotte looked at the manuscript and went "Mm, let's make some changes here although i think they're at least purportedly superficial stuff like punctuation or random mistakes and then some dialect like apparently there was a lot more uh the dialogue expressed like was written phonetically with like heavy yorkshire accents and charlotte went no that's a dumb idea and took that out
1: the end <laughs> don't say no to doctors
0: yeah i don't get people all
1: right make i don't get it don't, don't let this bronte buck you
0: so as you said, it was a very challenging novel. People were like, you know, oh my gosh, because it, it did. It, it challenged all of these norms and, you know, it's, it's a purportedly a sort of romantic novel, you know, just in, in the shape of it. But like RJ was saying, that it, it talks about class inequality and gender inequality and just cruelty and obsession and all of this stuff. And today it gets reduced into... What a tragic romance, which is like, no, wrong, incorrect. This is a book about vengeance and puppy strangling and heavily implied necrophilia. And yet it regularly appears on like these greatest romances in literature lists, which is demented. It's like, did you even actually read the book? This is not a story of wild romance. This is a story about two selfish Garbage people, one of whom is admittedly much more outrightly terrible than the other, and how their obsession with each other ruined the lives of multiple generations of people, several of whom are innocent bystanders.
1: I guess. Heathcliff's is the man, man.
0: No. Yeah. Heathcliff is a horrible person, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about this now. I want Revenge. Yeah, I want you all to appreciate that that re- re-reading, revisiting this book and having to write about it just shaved like six weeks off of my life. But I do it for you. I'm actually really excited to talk about this episode's Pod Pals because it's me. Sort of. It's the Rolling Misadventures podcast, a collaboration between myself, Derek from the Sometimes Geek podcast, and Charles from the Something Random podcast. It's really Derek's baby and Charles and I are just sort of along for the ride but it is a real play podcast where we play a game system called Fiasco which is kind of like D&D but with a lot more like weird crazy improv and if your characters were just doomed from the start just just really screwed we've already recorded a few episodes and it's been like so much fun and i'm so excited for people to hear it they're sort of small pretty self-contained story structure kind of like movie acts so you'll be able to kind of jump in when without having to deal with like a huge terrifying backlog if you're listening to this on the day of it comes out in just three days on july 8th if you're listening to this in the future then it might it might even be out now it could be a thing that you can go listen to right now so do that um and here's here's a little teaser for you
1: Welcome to Rolling Misadventures, where we play Fiasco and see how everything is going to go terribly for our characters.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Do you not have lasers in your medieval high fantasy settings? Um, which, uh, as we pan up, we see John Dick Curtis, uh, buck-ass naked, running down an alleyway. Wiener in the uh, wind. As the edges
1: closer. Yep, <laughs> wiener in the wind. Uh, we were making some clones and uh, uh, made an extra. You. Who are you?
0: I don't know about you, but where I come from, uh, the person who's currently wearing pants gets to ask the questions and get them answered.
1: You want to use uh, uh, John for, like, a secret mission or something like that? Is that what's going on?
0: Yeah, no, we're already there.
1: Do you think this is this uh, situation that John has gotten himself into is going to end negatively or poorly?
0: You're negatively or poorly?
1: I want to say this right now. No clue what we've got ourselves into, so...
0: It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun, right? So, before we crack open a cold one with the Brontes, fair warning, this is another one of those books where there's just sort of an abundance of characters that can be hard to keep straight because a lot of them have the same names and it gets confusing, and also, it's another story, Turducken, when we're gonna be getting narration, like, three times removed. Happens. It happens. So, with that in mind, The Heights... As they are weathered. The book opens in 1801, with a dude named Lockwood telling the reader via his diary about how he's renting this house called Thrushcross Grange, and goes to see his landlord, a man named Heathcliff, who doesn't have a last name and lives in a remote country house called Wuthering Heights. It is important to note that Lockwood, our primary first layer narrator, OI is, is, <laughs> is Wuthering Heights, eh? <laughs> eh? Eh? He's an idiot. How do we know that Lockwood is an idiot? Well, he gets to Wuthering Heights and Heathcliff, who Lockwood describes as a dark-skinned gypsy. So he keep no the,
1: Savage. keep
0: that, that fun bit of racism in your pocket for later. Heathcliff is super tense and cold and unfriendly to Lockwood, making it very clear that he'd really rather not be renting to him. I can't think of any clearer way to say I don't much like you than to have your pack of dogs attempt to maul your renter to death, and that's just what Heathcliff does to Lockwood until the housekeeper saves him. And Lockwood's just like, my, what a capital fellow, that Heathcliff. Seems like a man after my own heart. I bet he'd just love to see more of me. I'm going to come back tomorrow. So yeah, he's, he's an idiot. And he does return to Wuthering Heights. He jumps over a locked gate and pounds on a locked door because he's a friggin' moron, my god. But then a young man lets him in. Who is this young man? Eh, it's probably not important. At least not to Lockwood, who's way more interested in that hot young thing sitting by the fireplace. The dog? (laughs) No, he's already very well acquainted with the dogs. No, it's a young lady, and he says, oh, you must be Mrs. Heathcliff, even though she's, like, a teen. And she's like, no, I'm, like, a teen. I'm his daughter-in-law. And Lockwood is like, oh, okay, so that young man who let me in, that must be your husband, and therefore Heathcliff's son. And then Heathcliff just suddenly, like, fucking appears and goes, oh, no, it's way more stupidly complicated than that. And he tells Lockwood that the young man is named Harriton? Harriton? H A R. E-T-O-N. Herton. Herton Earnshaw. And he is not his son, but he just kind of lives there. And that the girl, who still doesn't have a name, is the widow of Heathcliff's dead actual son. And also Heathcliff, who is already really pissed that Lockwood is back in his fucking house, is even more pissed about Lockwood having the gall to assume that young Heriton might be related to him. Also, these two kids kind of hate each other and resent the implication that they might look married. Basically, it's super awkward, and everyone is staring murder daggers at everyone else, and at this point, even Lockwood is like, hmm I'm getting an odd vibe that maybe I should go home and never come back, but uh-oh, snowstorm, guess I have to stay the night. And of course, no one wants to fucking do that. In fact, Heathcliff lets the dogs attack him again. <laughs> they give him a bloody nose. He's saved again by the housekeeper, Zilla, and Zilla's like, okay, I guess you can stay the night here in this out-of-the-way room, which we keep locked, Because Heathcliff has forbidden anyone from setting foot in it, and if he knew anyone was sleeping in here, would probs murder them in a fit of white-hot rage? And Lockwood's like, Neat, that sounds good! Lockwood would die first in a horror movie. Probably so. Anyway, he settles in for the night. And by settles in, I mean roots through stuff that isn't his in the forbidden mystery room like a nosy dipshit, until he finds a diary dated 25 years ago, and you know he reads that shit, and here's what we learn. It's written by a young girl named Catherine. Who's friends with a boy named Heathcliff, and the two of them are relentlessly bullied by something called a Hindley? A Hindley. A Hindley? A Hindley. Hindley, which is not a person's name, but neither is Hareton or Heathcliff or whatever, I guess. Anyway, it seems like this Catherine girl and this Heath bar boy were pretty close. Lockwood wonders what that's about. And if it's at all related to the ghost lady outside his window, sobbing that she's Catherine Linton and she wants to be let in, and Heathcliff running into the room and not even being able to properly freak out about Lockwood being in there because he's too busy screaming at the window for his darling Catherine to please come and haunt him all up in his business. It's probably nothing, right? Yeah. 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 Nothing. Nothing. Lockwood eventually goes home and puzzles over what the fuck is going on at Dub Heights. When his housekeeper, a woman named Nellie, brings him his dinner, he's all like, "Nelly, I know you used to work at Wuthering Heights. Won't you be a dear and dish me that hot gossip? And she does. And so now we're getting into layer two, as Nellie tells Lockwood, who tells us, the horrifically tangled lineage of House W.H. Alright, so, get a pen, get some paper, get some string... Unless you're in a car, in which case, oh, well. All right, you ready? ready Are you ready? I am ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, so we've got this woman. Her name is Catherine Earnshaw. And her older brother, Hindley Earnshaw, and they lived at Wuthering Heights, which was at the time owned by their dad. The girl that Lockwood met the other day is also Catherine. She's the daughter of the first Catherine. And she's named Catherine Linton, and we're just going to call her Kathy Two. Kathy Two's dad was named Edgar Linton, And he used to own Thrushcross Grange, which is where Lockwood lives now. And Heathcliff was married to Edgar's sister, Isabella, but everyone is dead now except Heathcliff, Kathy No. 2, and the boy, Harriton Earnshaw, who's Kathy No. 1's nephew and Kathy No. 2's cousin, and is technically the last of the Earnshaw line, I guess? Fuck me. Some days of our lives shit. It's only gonna get worse, too. Lockwood tries to take all that in and is just like, okay, wow, fuck that. Maybe just tell me why Heathcliff is such a prick and also why Dub Heights is his house now because if I'm following this nightmare family thread, shouldn't it be Harriton's house? And Nellie's like, <laughs> you poor simple fool, it's way more stupidly complicated than that.
1: It's English, you idiot.
0: <laughs> but she assures him that she's got all the dirt on Heathcliff. Except for where he's from or who his parents were. Or how he got rich. But she's got the rest of it, don't worry. We're totally in good hands with this new narrator, you guys. Oh my fuck, we have only just begun. So as Nellie tells it, the story of whatever the fuck went down at Wuthering Heights begins with Daddy Earnshaw coming home from the bustling streets of London town with a cool souvenir for his two kids. You have any idea what it might be?
1: He came back with a bunny <laughs> from Watership Down. Yeah,
0: there you go. A lovely uh, bunny. Pappy?
1: <laughs> I don't remember any of their names
0: none of the rabbits were named pappy no
1: i have a peppy nope. peppy peppy's a bunny he is a bunny watch not, out not fox in, not
0: in watership down though
1: do a barrel roll uh
0: that um, was slippy he got come the...
1: on Meg. that was the joke you were supposed to make
0: that wasn't slippy peppy is the one who tells him to do a barrel oh roll. shit really
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> i think you're wrong no What'd i know slippy i'm say? right i
0: know i'm right slippy's the frog slippy never really said anything except for ah fox help are we sure? Yes. I am a thousand percent sure that Pepe. that's why it's like, do a barrel roll, because that's Peppy's voice. That is? I played Star Fox 64 a thousand times. Don't fucking test me oh, on shit. this.
1: Oh shit, I forgot Google does that. Motherfucker. Anytime I do barrel roll, it does a barrel roll. Uh, Alright, maybe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> So, no, the, the cool souvenir that Papa Earnshaw has picked up for his kids is a weird, dirty orphan boy named Heathcliff that Earnshaw just, like, grabbed off the street and decided to take home. And Hindley and Catherine are like, gross, why? And Earnshaw's like, cause I fucking felt like it. Also, he's my favorite kid now. Choke on it. Heathcliff hates everyone in the house, and everyone hates Heathcliff right back until Hindley goes off to college, and suddenly Catherine decides that she likes Heathcliff, and they're terrible little hell children together, getting in trouble and being wild and shit. Then Mr. Earnshaw dies of something or other, and Hindley comes home to be the master of the house and an asshole to everyone. He calls Heathcliff a Satan imp and treats him like a servant, but I'm sure those choices won't come back to haunt him at all. In the meantime, Kathy and Heathie continue to grow closer, and Bronte uses lots of nature imagery and shit to show that the two kids are wild and free and beautiful and also kind of feral, but whatever. Unfortunately, things change when the two gremlins decide to go to Thrust thrust Cross Hot Cross Buns and spy on the Linton kids, Edgar and Isabella, because, like, fuck those nerds, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Except they get attacked by the Linton's guard dog, because Emily Bronte really didn't like dogs, it seems like, despite her being a lover of animals. And Kathy gets her ankle bitten, and the Lintons find them and are like, Oh no, you poor dear girl, come inside the house and we'll take care of you, you sweet baby angel. And then they see Heathcliff, and they're like, Ew, you're dirty, and also ambiguously brown. Go home. And he does. And Hindley has to go to the Lintons and get yelled at for being a shitty guardian, and then Catherine stays at the Linton house, recovering from her nibbled ankle for five fucking weeks.
1: Take some time.
0: they couldn't have brought her home?
1: No. <laughs> it's not safe to travel with broken bones.
0: I guess. They never say her bones are broken. they're just bitten. Well, they were especially long weeks for old Heathcliff, who was alone and miserable and tortured by Hindley, and so he's excited to have his fellow weird gremlin child back. Except. 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 <laughs> except. 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 Except.
1: Except. Except. Except.
0: Except. Mine. 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 Except. Mine. Mine. Except. Mine. 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 <laughs> Mine.
1: <laughs> Except, 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 except.
0: <laughs> except that in these past five weeks the Lintons did like a My Fair Lady on Catherine and she is now a proper lady and she thinks Heathcliff is gross and dirty and has gypsy parents so it sucks to be him yet yeah, gypsy gets thrown around a lot because Heathcliff is a uh, is some sort of not white person I don't know they don't mm. say they just he's, hes not white, and he's—he's he's gypsy-ish, whatever that means in the racist parlance of the time. So yeah, the Lintons come over for dinner, and Heathcliff desperately looks to Nelly for help, telling her, "Oh, Nelly, I want to be good. Help make me decent, so I can be a good boy, and maybe then people will stop being dicks at me all the time." And so the Linton kids come over, and Heathcliff does his best to turn over a new leaf and be a good boy, for about ten seconds. And then Edgar says his hair's dumb, and Heathcliff hurls hot applesauce at his face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hindley exiles Heathcliff to the attic, and Heathcliff tells Nelly, Okay, so new plan. Even if it takes my entire life, I'm going to get revenge on everyone and make them all regret ever being born, especially Hindley, because fuck him. Nelly, for her part, does not seem too bothered by these vows of eternal vengeance and such. Here's the thing, they're, they're trying to get you to, you know, get the sympathy for Heathcliff, because yes, he is greatly abused. This this man just grabs him and is like, you are my adoptive son now, come into this family where everyone else hates you. And as soon as he dies, Hindley's like, well, you're the stable poop boy now. And it just abuses him and stuff. So people do treat him very badly. Now, whether that is going to excuse what we get to later is up for you to decide. So present day Nelly. Tells Lockwood like, "Okay, can we like pick this up later? It's late." So
1: present day, like 2018.
0: Yes, 2018, Nelly.
1: Nelly, yo, <laughs> it's getting hot in here.
0: That's not twenty. That's not present day, Nelly. That's like,
1: better. Take off your clothes.
0: <laughs> that's like 13 years ago, Nelly.
1: <laughs> nah, he's still singing that one. Um, the hot song, Meg. All the kids are jamming to that at the club.
0: They are. They're jamming to it so hard.
1: Come on, Meg. It's your birthday. Get in the club, It's That's your birthday. 50 Cent.
0: She says like, can we pick this up later? It's late and my life does not revolve around you. And Lockwood's like, no, it totally does. Sit your ass down and keep talking. And so she skips ahead a bit to when Hindley's wife, yes, he has a wife, dies giving birth to their son, Harriton. So no, actually, he doesn't have a wife anymore. Hindley gives baby Harry to Nellie and is like, do something with this. I'm very busy being drunk and terrible. Catherine, meanwhile, is trying to have her fancy rich boy and wild farm gremlin too. Because Catherine lives for the drama. But then Edgar comes around to hang out with Catherine and Hindley's like, Nellie, chaperone these horny teens or however old they are at this point. And Catherine is pissed and like pinches and hits Nellie. And Edgar's like, why are you doing that? Stop it. And so then she hits Edgar. And then he's like, this this is not how a reasonable fucking person behaves. Except no, that's not what he does at all. You know what he does? What's he do? He's super turned on by Catherine's violent temper tantrums and he falls in love with her.
1: Yeah, as one does. As
0: one does. He's all like, wow, Catherine, now that I see what a shrieking jerk you are, I love you. And Catherine's like, oh, okay, I also love you now. Nellie's all, cool, I'm gonna go hide the baby and also the shotgun, because your shithead brother tends to do bad things with both of them when he's drunk, which is always. As we're gonna see, Nellie? Nellie's got a hard row to hoe with this fucking family. So unfortunately, Hindley finds baby Harriton and accidentally drops him over the top of the stairs. (laughs) And... In what might be, like, one of the most genuinely funny moments in this crazy fucking book, Heathcliff just happens to be walking under the staircase just as baby Harry falls and just, like, instinctively catches him. Like, he's just like, "Mm -hmm -hmm," and this baby just lands in his arms. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, wait, like, no, I wanted the opposite of this. I'm so mad that I saved this dumb baby's life. Darn. That same night, Catherine tells Nellie in secret that Edgar wants to marry her and that she's going to say yes. She says she loves Heathcliff, but he's basically a servant now and also kind of a dick and, you know, brown. And so she's gonna marry Edgar. Heathcliff happens to be listening in and, in true contrived story fashion, runs away all upset before he can hear Catherine add that her love for Heathcliff is as deep and unchanging as... Rocks and stuff, and that he and her are identical souls and basically the same person. She can't marry herself, can she, Nelly? I mean, that's just crazy. Catherine runs around in the rain looking for Heath chips and catches a fever. The Lintons take her back to Thorcrotch Grange where she gets better, but not before giving the fever to Mom and Dad Linton, who then die.
1: Yeah, they stop making out with her.
0: but hey you know if if smacking him around made edgar horny then killing his parents with her gross germs must have just made him like rock hard because then they get married romance and then present day nelly's like hey can we take a fucking break now and lockwood's like fine yeah i guess and then he's sick for a whole month and he bitches about it because that's some compelling narrative right there He manages to get well enough to harass Nellie until she continues to regale Lockwood with the tragic and poetic story of these dumb bunch of assholes. So it's been three years now since Heathcliff disappeared, and Catherine and Edgar are living happily with his sister Isabella in the house where Catherine germ-warfared Edgar's parents to death. Everything's fine and dandy, which means it's the perfect time for Heathcliff to come back and fuck it all up for the drama. Which he does. Like, the second he sets foot on the moors, Catherine bolts up like, I sense Heathcliff! He's here! I can feel it! Get out of my way, Edward, or whatever the fuck your name is! Heathcliff is here now! Heathcliff is a man now. He's polished, and gentlemanly, and apparently also jacked as fuck. Oh, and he's also rich, somehow? Through unclear means that Nelly decides must either be crimes, or a pact with Satan. Because those are the only ways that people who aren't born wealthy make money, I suppose. Yeah? Yeah. How it happens? Devil or crimes. Because he's rich... Drunk-ass, good-for-nothing Hindley is suddenly all like, Oh, yes, Heathcliff, my wonderful adopted brother who I definitely didn't abuse for your whole life. Please come back and stay at Dub Heights with me. And also bring your money. The money can have its own room. So Catherine's hot for Heathcliff, but he ignores her in favor of running game on Edgar's sister Isabella. Which works, despite the fact that he's just awful. Nellie... Perhaps remembering small Heathcliff's vow of revenge has a bad feeling about all of this. It goes to Wuthering Heights, where small child Harriton throws rocks at her and cusses a bunch. We learn that Heathcliff is teaching Harriton cool swears to yell at his horrible dad. Catherine searches for Heathcliff and corners him in a kitchen and is like, Hey, this thing you're doing with Isabella, is it for real? Because, you know, if you really do love her, which I am totally okay with and have zero problems with, I can talk to Edgar about making that happen for you. And Heathcliff is like, lol, no, this is purely for vengeance reasons. No, no love. I mean, I'm not trying to get revenge on you, obviously, even though you married Edgar and broke my heart. But everyone else is fair game, and that includes Edgar and his dumb sister. And Catherine is aghast and calls for Edgar and tries to make them fight each other for the drama. Except Heathcliff is a big strong boy. Like Tim Tebow. Like Tim Tebow. And Edgar is a soft pudding cup of a man.
1: Like Dan Levitard.
0: <laughs> sure, he tells Catherine that he's sick of this shit, and she must choose between him and Heathcliff. And Catherine chooses. Poppy. N- no. Pappy. No.
1: Who gets the rabbit? Which one did the barrel roll? Oh
0: boy, Catherine chooses to throw a tantrum.
1: I it's... would masturbate too. No, she I, doesn't whenever I have minutes. to, whenever I have to make a big decision, you
0: just, you just <laughs> go I'd... off and crank it for a while.
1: I take a leave of absence. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta clear my mind. Yeah, I don't want any distractions up there. To, there you go. There, that's right.
0: Yep. So Catherine throws a tantrum and locks herself in her room <laughs> well, for several I... days.
1: <laughs> that's a lot of time. To possibly
0: do. masturbating because how dare her husband make her choose between him and a guy who was openly admitting that he's just out to destroy them all. Also, while this happens, Heathcliff hangs Isabella's dog in the garden where it almost strangles itself to death before Nelly saves it romance happened. At this point, you know, I was like seriously like what what is Emily Bronte's fucking problem with dogs? Apparently, she was bitten by a rabid dog as when when she was young and she proceeded to cauterize the wound herself with a hot poker. Holy shit. You got to be tough. She was tough. That's that's hardcore. So yeah, she she's got some dog issues despite apparently being a lover of animals.
1: <laughs> oh. don't have to love every animal
0: i guess not anyway Catherine tantrums so hard that she has a hallucinatory fit and like brain fever and so when a doctor comes to treat her they learn that she is pregnant meanwhile isabella runs off with heathcliff because she's apparently also an idiot heathcliff tried to murder her dog But she soon realizes what a bad idea marrying this man was when she moves in with him. And she sends Nellie a letter that puts us in a third layer of narrative as Isabella tells Nellie, who tells Lockwood, who tells us, that life with Heathcliff fucking sucks. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You were the one who was like, Heathcliff, good dude, great guy, love him.
1: (laughs) I still love him. That doesn't change. Okay. Love love is complicated.
0: Mm, Yep. Yes, it is. Love ain't easy. (laughs) (laughs)
1: love ain't hard love is love is love actually
0: that's bad movie Um, oh you thought it was a bad movie too oh hindley is a desperate drunk sad sack who somehow has ended up in deep debt to heathcliff who fucking loves it Harrington is still a feral goblin child and those are the only people there so it's pretty shit company for isabella all around heathcliff tells isabella straight up that until i can get to your brother i'm gonna make you suffer and really, it's not like he was being very deceptive about that to begin with. Like, she ought to have seen this coming. In the meantime, Heathcliff bullies Nellie into arranging a meeting between him and Catherine. And he storms into her room where she's still sick with the brain fever from tantruming too hard.
1: I think you mean to say, pussy fever.
0: That doesn't make sense, no. And she's like, oh, you and Edgar have broken my heart and now I'm dying. You broke
1: my heart, I broke my pussy. <laughs>
0: And Heathcliff does this weird bit of mental gymnastics where he's like, I can never hate you, Catherine, but I hate everyone who causes you pain. And you're causing yourself pain. And if you die, I can never forgive your murderer, which would be you. That's good. Yeah, I know. How about that? And then he grabs her so hard, he gives her bruises. And Edgar comes in and is like, fucking go away, dude. And Heathcliff's like, okay, fine. But I'm going to angst outside your house in the garden all night. Just a heads up. All night long. All night. Heathcliff's hiding in your garden. (laughs) All night. (laughs) That same night, Catherine gives birth to Catherine Part 2, the sequel to Catherine, and in the fashion of women giving birth in this novel as well as gothic Victorian literature in general, fucking dies. R.I.P. Catherine, you loved the drama and definitely died on purpose to avoid having to deal with all the bullshit that is still to follow. Out of pity... Nellie lets him say a final goodbye to Catherine, and he abuses this, in typical Heathcliff fashion, by opening up a locket around her neck to take out a lock of Edgar's hair that was in there and replace it with some of his hair. (laughs) And then when he leaves, Nellie's just like, Jesus Christ, man, come on. And she puts Edgar's back in so that, even in death, Catherine doesn't actually have to make a fucking decision. She's got both their hair in Perfect. Yep. Hindley does not go to the funeral, because he's drunk and shitty. Instead, mad about owing the dirty orphan boy a bunch of money, he tries to kill Heathcliff using a gun knife, which is a gun that he taped a knife onto. really <laughs> like He's just drunk and he's desperate. He's like, i got going to kill Heathcliff with this pistol. I put a knife on it. This plan can't fail
1: called a harpoon
0: it's not it's not what a harpoon is
1: Well, what's a harpoon a harpoon
0: is a spear
1: i see you play knifey harpooning before
0: <laughs> so yeah, no. this this brilliant uh innovation of hindley's doesn't work and Heathcliff beats the shit out of him but in the ensuing scuffle isabella manages to get away and relate this nonsense to nelly she then runs away never to be seen again and then also hindley dies at the ripe old age of 27 due to being more alcohol than man So now it's just Lil' Harriton and crazy Uncle Heathcliff alone together at Wuthering Heights, which Heathcliff also now owns since Hindley died indebted to him. And so Heathcliff vows that he will raise Harriton himself and try to be the good father that neither of them ever had, taking it upon himself to end the cycle of abuse and bullshit that has dominated Wuthering Heights his whole life.
1: Hey, Heathcliff's a good guy. Hero.
0: Except no, that's that's not what happens at all.
1: Yeah, it is. No, it's in not. the original OG
0: book. Yeah, before Charlotte changed it. <laughs> yeah, leave it to her. What what actually happens in the book, as opposed to RJ's fan fiction, is that Heathcliff is all, "I'm going to raise this kid in the exact same shitty fashion that I was raised in, and also make sure he never inherits any money or this house, even though it's his birthright. Because even though he's a little kid who has never done anything but been already abused his whole life." He's Hindley's son. And even though Hindley is already dead, I still thirst for revenge.
1: Yeah, man. Never that's give up. Don't take your eye off the ball. Go for the prize. <laughs> eye of the tiger.
0: Do, do, do,
1: do, That's, doo, that's doo, what doo, that is. Do, do,
0: do, do, you your
1: rivals.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do, 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 do to your rivals. Yeah. Twelve years pass. Ellie must be fucking exhausted. That's like four Star Wars movies. I know. Kathy, too, is a daddy's girl and seems to not be the same level of drama queen that her mom was, but is annoyed that she is forbidden from exploring the moors. The reason she is forbidden is because it would take her by Dub Heights and in Heathcliff's sightline, and Edgar's like, fuck that. But then Edgar gets a letter from Isabella that's got a couple bombshells in it. One, I mean, he's hearing from Isabella, just in general, but she has a 12-year-old son. That Heathcliff is the father of, which means she did a sex with Heathcliff, which is gross. Mm. Two, she named this kid Linton Heathcliff, which may be the only name in literature worse than Albus Severus Potter, because his first name is just Isabella and Edgar's last name, and then also the name of the man Isabella hates and literally ran away from, Linton Heathcliff.
1: Well, this is this whole thing's a mess. You shouldn't be doing that. Remember, punch.
0: Yeah, punch. Punch it out. Punch
1: yeah. this book right out the window. Please,
0: God, punch this book.
1: Procreate.
0: You already forgot everything. That unique wasn't.
1: unique names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, wait, wait, no, 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 no. no. You got to procreate. Give a unique name and consider, and consider Harambe.
0: So Isabella did not. She procreated. And that was about where it ended. And so the third thing is she's dying. So it would be super awesome if Edgar came and brought Little Linton back home with him. And so he does, and while he's gone, Kathy 2 ditches Nelly and runs off to Wuthering Heights. Nellie finds her hanging out with Harriton, and they're just chilling and being cool, and Nellie's like, no, don't don't talk to him. He's a bad boy, and Kathy 2's like, ew, what are you, like a servant? And Harriton cusses at her, because he's been raised to be a little hellion, and Nelly's like, actually, he's your cousin. And Kathy 2's like, no, no, father is off getting my cousin, and Nelly's like, you know you can have more than one cousin, right? Anyway, Edgar comes home with Linton, who's pale and sickly and just all around looking like the poster child for tuberculosis. One of Heathcliff's servants comes to collect Linton and bring him to Dove Heights, and Edgar's all, man, I know that kid is gonna get eaten alive over there, and I should probably keep him here, but he is Heathcliff's son, so fuck it. Heathcliff is overjoyed to see his son.
1: My blood, my child, my boy.
0: (laughs) Nah, not, not because of any of that, but because he's Isabella's son, and that means he stands to an inherit Thrushcross Grange, as well as Dub Heights, and uh, this boy is Heathcliff's property and the living instrument of his revenge. And also, you know, like an actual boy who's never done a bad thing to anyone, but yeah, sure, okay, vengeance, sure, why not? Never give up. Never give up. Vengeance!
1: <laughs> revenge!
0: Also, Heathcliff hates him because he's sick, and sad and is mean to him and finds that he actually likes Harriton better and wishes that Harriton was his son but he won't stop abusing Harriton and you want to know why
1: he sees Harriton's old boner when he does it
0: okay nope nope (laughs) The, the fact that this is not even the first time or the second time maybe not even the third time that I've had to say can you not talk about child dick on our show Heathcliff says he won't stop abusing Harriton because, and I quote, he enjoys doing it too much. Mm. Greatest romance in classic literature. More time passes, and Kathy 2 is 16, and Heathcliff decides that now is the time to unveil the next phase of his never-ending revenge. Get Kathy 2 to marry his awful sickly son that he hates to lock in access to the Grange once Edgar kicks the bucket. He finds Nellie and Kathy out on the moors and badgers them into his house to see Linton. Kathy, too, and Linton begin exchanging letters in secret. And Nellie finds out and is like, No, fuck no, I'm not going through this shit again. One generation of this Catherine Heathcliff garbage is enough. And she destroys the letters and keeps them from speaking to each other. Except then Heathcliff appears, as he is wont to do, just, you know, popping up out of the fucking moor. And is like, oh no, my son is dying now because you've broken his heart. So, Kathy 2 and Nellie go back to Dove Heights, and Linton whines and cries and makes like gross sick people noises, like. <laughs> and uh, history repeats itself as Kathy 2, like her father, is mega turned on by dumbass tantrums. After this, Kathy 2 keeps going to Wuthering Heights in secret and flirt fighting with both of her cousins. Nellie breaks the narrative to tell Lockwood that all of this most recent bullshit was happening just last winter. And Lockwood is like, oh, shit, wow, I forgot that these were, like, real people with lives and not fun soap opera characters. That doesn't mean stop talking, though. Edgar's now sick and close to dying. And so is young Linton. And so Heathcliff is in a race against time to get Linton and Kathy Two married before either his son dies or... Edgar dies so that Heathcliff can get this other fucking house because even though this is just so stupid in the grand scheme of things He's dedicated his entire stupid adult life to it. So Never give up <laughs> Linton convinces Kathy too and Nellie to meet with him He tells them that Heathcliff said if he doesn't return to Wuthering Heights with Kathy too His dad is gonna kill him and not like the Oh, man My dad's gonna kill me but like actually murder him so Kathy and Nelly go back with Linton to Dub Heights and Heathcliff fucking locks them in the house, smacking Kathy too upside the head when she tries to escape and is like, nobody fucking leaves this house until I'm your father-in-law. Romance.
1: Yes. Jesus.
0: <laughs> I, I love
1: when a true love story breaks out.
0: <laughs> they are forcibly cousin married. Then Heathcliff purposely turns the two against each other because he's the worst person ever, Jesus Christ. Like, th- these are two teenagers, and one of them is your kid, you horrific taint-gargler. <sighs> Kathy, too, escapes the house by climbing out the window and-, and makes it back home in time to watch her dad, Edgar, die. Now Heathcliff has everything. He makes Kathy, too, move to Dub Heights so he can rent out the Grange that he wanted so fucking badly. And Kathy, too, angrily tells him that, like, whatever. She and Linton still love each other, and no one loves Heathcliff, so no matter how shitty he is to them, they'll never be as miserable as Heathcliff is himself. Hell yeah, Kathy too. Sick burn. Heathcliff then regales Nellie with a fun story about how when Edgar was being buried next to Catherine, Heathcliff hired someone to dig up Catherine's coffin. And then Heathcliff opened it up, and even though Catherine has been dead for like 17 years at this point, he assures Nellie that her corpse still looked passably hot. It is heavily implied that he put his dick in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah!
1: Look, a man's gotta do what a man's gotta do.
0: Well, let's see, I've done pretty much every horrible thing a person can do, but I haven't put my dick in a corpse yet. But really, that's not just me, that's not just us being gross. Like, when we read it in class, my professor was like, alright, who thinks he fucked Catherine's body? And most of us raised our hands, and she was like, yeah, he probably did. Anyway... Nellie says that she hasn't been able to see Kathy 2 since then, and like, poor fucking Nellie, man. Like, she's just tired. She's so tired of dealing with, like, 30-plus years of this bullshit. She tells Lockwood that she gets info on what's going down in Dub Heights by talking to Zilla, the housekeeper there, which is how she knows that Linton died, and also that Heathcliff forced his son to sign a will that left everything to his dad and nothing to Kathy 2. Also, there's a good chance that now that he was done with him, motherfucker probably killed his own son. You still think Heathcliff is a neat dude? Yes. Why? I don't know. Ugh. The name. Yeah.
1: It buys a lot.
0: And now we're at the present, with Heathcliff playing King of Asshole Castle with Kathy 2 and Harriton. And Lockwood is just like, holy shit, Nellie. Jesus Christ. You know, I'm starting to think that Heathcliff might not be such a good dude after all. Anyway, I'm out of here. Later, weirdos. Deuces. Oh, but he just can't stay away, that Lockwood. And six months later, finds himself nearabouts, Thrushbun's Grange, Grange Town, and stops in to say hi to Nellie, only to find that she's no longer there, but back at Dub Heights. He heads there, and is immediately struck by the fact that the manor looks bright and cheerful and well cared for and not like a misanthropic supervillain nightmare man lives there. He wanders on in, and sees Kathy too tenderly teaching Harriton to read by the fire, and Nellie appears and tells him that the two cousins get along great now, and they'll probably get cousin married. And also Nellie lives there now, and basically everything is super awesome. And the reason for that is that Heathcliff is dead.
1: Yay! No! Now it's a tragedy.
0: No! And Lockwood is like, go on. And Nellie is just so jazzed that she can go and dance on Heathcliff's grave when Ev's, you know, whenever the mood strikes her that she doesn't even mind that Lockwood is making her play storyteller again, even though she's not his housekeeper anymore. He's just like, woman, tell me story. So basically, Harriton accidentally shot himself, possibly with his father's gun knife, (laughs) and was laid up for a good long while, and he and Kathy too stopped being assholes to each other and realized they had a lot in common. They're both cousins, Heathcliff was the architect of their misery, etc. Meanwhile, Heathcliff tries really hard to be pissed off about this new development, but... (gasps) He just doesn't have the fire of revenge in him anymore. He uh he lost sight of that Eye of the Tiger. Really? Eye of
1: the Tiger is the thrill of the fight.
0: Rivals. Well here's the problem. Much like Rocky, he got everything he wanted. He destroyed multiple lives. Well, Rocky didn't destroy multiple lives, but you know what I mean. Yeah, he
1: did. He got Apollo killed. He got <laughs> Mickey killed. He
0: did get Mickey He
1: got he ruined his son's life.
0: All right, so yeah, like Rocky, he got everything he wanted. He destroyed multiple lives. Polly's
1: life got ruined.
0: And now he's just hollow and sad and missing Catherine.
1: I'm not even sure what happened to that dog, Buckus.
0: (laughs) Probably something bad.
1: Yeah, he kind of ruined his own life, too.
0: Yeah, well, Heathcliff also ruined his own life, so... Heathcliff and Rocky Balboa. The parallels. After moping around a while, one night he vanishes out in the moors and doesn't come home until the next day. And when he does, he's excited and happy which creeps everyone else the fuck out. Nelly asks what's up and Heathcliff is just like heaven is in sight, which is also creepy. And then he summons a lawyer to like get his will written up and so we can ascertain that something out on the moors told him he was going to die and he's just over the fucking moon about finally being reunited with Catherine. When he does die, Nelly finds his body lying in bed and his face just frozen in a weird grimacy snarl because of course it is. Also, Pronte makes a point of letting us know that Nelly isn't able to close his eyes. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> so I just want, let's just take a moment and enjoy the visual of Nelly aggressively just trying to, like, yank down dead Eclipse's eyes. And they just don't fucking move. Or his eyelids, not. They <laughs> <laughs> just, like, nope. Anyway, um,. Heathcliff is buried next to Catherine, so she's between her two men for eternity. R.I.P. Heathcliff, fuck you. Local villagers say they've seen his spirit haunting the Moors and being a ghost bastard, and yeah, that sounds like something he would do. For the drama. The end.
1: But wait. What? There's more.
0: No, no, there's not.
1: Heathcliff wasn't dead.
0: No, he was. He was quite dead. No. What was he?
1: Sleeping.
0: With his eyes open. With his eyes open. In rigor mortis.
1: Oh, I get that in my penis every day.
0: Okay. No, he's dead. You don't? Nope, my penis is pretty flaccid. It's tragic. He is dead. The book is over. We did it, everyone. So let's talk about some adaptations. People have been making adaptations of Wuthering Heights for basically 100 years now. There have been movies and plays and operas and limited-run TV miniseries and books where it's like, okay, Wuthering Heights, but set in post-World War II Japan. Or Wuthering Heights, but now it's meta and Emily Bronte's Ghost is there. Or Wuthering Heights, but now it's set in high school in Malibu and it's called fucking Wuthering High School. Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, was was adapted into a shitty Lifetime movie. BT Dubs. With like an elderly, confused James Cannon in it. And Lifetime made it even worse because you know what they changed the title of Wuthering High School to?
1: The Injured Guest.
0: No. The Wrong Boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) So, quick sidebar. Lifetime movies
1: are amazing.
0: (laughs) They are. One of RJ and mine's dark and terrible hobbies is getting hammered and watching bad Lifetime movies. Because they're great. They're fucking wild. And I want to make it clear that I'm not making this up. This is a thing. We have seen the wrong neighbor, the wrong daughter, the wrong nanny, the wrong student, and I think we even saw a little bit of the wrong house. I don't know what this is, but Lifetime keeps doing it. People need to know.
1: They've done it again.
0: Anyway, notable film adaptations include probably the most famous one from 1939 starring Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon. Haven't seen it, don't care, can't make me. And no matter how good it is, it, like many other coward adaptations, apparently just completely scraps the second half of Heathcliff is a crazy old revenge man manipulating children bit. Pussies. If you're going to adapt this shit show, then fucking commit. Do the whole thing. Other notable Heathcliffs include former James Bondsman, Timothy Dalton, Ray Fiennes, Ian McShane, and Tom Hardy. Do yourself a favor real quick right now. Google Tom Hardy as Heathcliff. It's great. He looks like a big prissy dork, and the wig budget for his costume looks like it was two whole dollars.
1: My favorite Heathcliff is Clifford the Dog.
0: That's not his name. The big red dog. His name is Clifford, not Heathcliff. These are two different names. Also, there's already a cartoon character named Heathcliff. There's a fucking cat. Here's a ca- comic cat named Heathcliff. He was
1: my hero as a child. Okay. He was big and red and a dog, and his name was Heath Clifford.
0: No, it was not. Anyway, I was... oh, What do you
1: think Cliff is short for?
0: It- Clifford!
1: <laughs> Heath Cliff. <laughs> no
0: one called the dog Cliff. He was Clifford.
1: <laughs> Which is short for Heath Cliff.
0: I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I would be remiss in my nerd duties if I didn't mention artist Kate Beaton's amazing Wuthering Heights comics. You know, the like, good thing about this bullshit is that it reminded me that those comics exist and they're fucking hilarious and amazing. They're on her website, Harka Vagrant, and they're goddamn delightful. And speaking of Kate's, one thing everyone everywhere brings up in terms of the book's pop culture-ness is Kate Bush's 1978 debut single called, obviously, Wuthering Heights. It's been covered a bazillion times by everything from metal bands and punk bands and swing bands to like, you know, breathy Enya type shit. Yes, that. Very good. What is- is Enya here? Enya! Thank you for visiting! Also, while I know of Kate Bush, like, I don't really know any of her music off the top of my head. So I was not prepared for the fact that she has, like, a squeaky helium voice. And, uh, it, it makes this already sort of uncomfortably bubbly sounding, like, pop ballad. Even weirder. It's complete with, like, wind chimes, or whatever instrument it is that makes the sparkly Disney magic sound. That! <laughs> the fucking sparkle music! <laughs> um... I had only heard the song. I haven't actually looked at the video until just now. The video is worth watching. Get some peak 70s going on in there. For all that it it sounds sparkly, the lyrics are like right on the money. Like Bad dreams in the night. They told me I was going to lose the fight, leaving behind my wuthering, wuthering heights. Heathcliff, it's me. Heathcliff, it's me. (laughs) I'm Kathy. I've come home. I'm so cold. Let me in through your window. It gets dark. It gets lonely on the other side from you. I pine a lot, I find a lot, falls through without you. I'm coming back, love. Cruel Heathcliff, my one dream, my only master. So it's fucking creepy, which is accurate. So, you know, I'll give Kate Bush that. She understood the truth. What else? No. Uh, what? She's wrong. This is not a healthy romance story.
1: None of them ever
0: are. No, but this was not, I don't think it was meant to be. And that's the thing, Like, like, what else we got here? Oh, in Twilight, Wuthering Heights is Bella and Edward's favorite book. Hmm
1: They got some good-ass taste.
0: <laughs> Noted abuser and generally skeezy, fake, deep, washed-up has-been Johnny Depp was asked in an interview at one point if he was a romantic, to which he replied, quote, Am I a romantic? I've seen Wuthering Heights ten times. I'm a romantic. Maybe someone should have paid more attention to that answer in retrospect. Because, yeah, if someone says that they think Wuthering Heights is romantic, that's a red flag. Like guys who have Fight Club quotes on their Tinder profile, or someone who references Fifty Shades of Grey as a good example of BDSM. It's a sign to run very far away, and also maybe report them to the authorities. I don't know what kind of authority, but some kind. Just like, fuck, man. People just half glance at this book and are just like, greatest love story ever, such brooding, much angst, so tragedy. Like, fuck me. Like you said, everything we get of Emily Bronte is filtered through Charlotte. But I have to imagine that her intentions in making this novel and this character was not to be like, look at these tragic lovers, isn't it romantic? It's kind of more like, look what happens when people treat each other like shit and get obsessed with each other and are selfish fuckheads. Greatest literary romance.
1: Time Magazine calls it The number three most romantic book ever.
0: Fuck, what is wrong with you, Time Magazine? Did you actually read Wuthering Heights? What's number one? Is it fucking misery?
1: Pride and Prejudice.
0: At least in Pride and Prejudice, they don't go around fucking ruining people's lives. They're just awkward.
1: So there's a couple things this is ahead of. Okay. I don't know Brideshead Revisited.
0: I don't know Brideshead Revisited. Great
1: Gatsby, Anna Karenina, The English Patient, and The Time Traveler's Wife. Which, the time traveler dies in the end. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Spoiler alert for the time traveler's wife. Okay, why is it you haven't read Wuthering Heights, but you've read the time traveler's wife? I haven't. Why do you know that?
1: I read the plot synopsis of the movie.
0: Alright, we're, no, okay, we're done here. Right, is this is this a good book? Yes. Why?
1: Well, I don't think I could say it any better than Catherine says. I've dreamt in my life dreams that have stayed with me ever after and changed my ideas. They've gone through and through me like wine through water and alter the color of my mind. And this is one. Nice try. What? That's the quote.
0: <laughs> I believe it's I the got quote. it from
1: Time Magazine. Yeah,
0: Time Magazine, who thinks this is the third most romantic story of all time. Jesus, fuck. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ?
1: Weathering Heights.
0: As opposed to Wuthering Heights. Wuthering. Weathering. Werther's? Werther's Original Heights.
1: Your thoughts?
0: At this point, uh, to be fair, I don't even know if it's that I hate this book or that I hate everything surrounding this book. And that people have conflated it to be a tragic romantic love story. And it's like, no, what the fuck is wrong with you? Also, it's just a book about people, bad people doing horrible crap to each other. And like, you know, for the drama. And I feel like, at least in Great Gatsby, it's it's shorter. It's much more contained. Fucking Wuthering Heights, it's this sprawling, multi-generational clusterfuck of vengeance and this one guy being an asshole. And like, yes, people were an asshole to him when he was a kid. And they were racist and all that. But the whole point with Harriton is that he's like, I will raise this boy in the same way I was raised. Terrible. And he'll grow up to be a fuckface too. But he doesn't! He grows up to be a pretty okay kid. And him and Kathy, too, are happy together. So that just proves that Heathcliff is a fucker. I just I hate it. No. Bad. Get rid of it.
1: Now, Megan, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Have you ever thought that mm-hmm. MJ... MJ. ...was playing everybody, you know, playing the whole Victorian thing that you want to save, you know, the hero. that you, know, you want the redemption story. Right. And you just don't get it.
0: And she was like, no, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm saying that even if she did that... The way that this book has become so entrenched in pop culture is tragic romance.
1: Yeah, but so she proved her
0: point. She did, but she, she wrote a long, torturous book in which to do it. And
1: She's not the hero we needed. <laughs> she was the hero we deserved. <laughs> she
0: is the one we deserve. We fucking deserve Emily Bronte. End it there. And that will about do it for us on this episode of Ono Lit Class. If you want to repay me for my horrible mental struggles, then subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating or a review. That really, really helps us in terms of, like, visibility and, and things like that. It let's people know we out there. You can pledge to us on Patreon and get to vote on episodes and also get stickers, posters, t-shirts, and other cool stuff. You can follow us on Twitter, at pod. You can join the Facebook group and talk about Dope book memes. You can check us out on Tumblr, where there are even more dope book memes. Just we're like the fucking Johnny Appleseed of dope book memes, spreading them throughout social media in our wake. Thank you to Best Day for our intro music. If you like those those sweet sounds, you can hear more of what he does at SoundCloud.com/slash-best-day. We are on the Brain Trust Network, along with shows like Life, Death, and Taxonomy, Play Comics, There Might Be Cupcakes. And Banana Splits. Our next episode will be on July 19th. Until then, I'm Megan.
1: I'm R-Jizzle. Gross. R-J.
0: We love you. Bye.
1: I don't want to get (laughs) back on a Brucking Bronte. A
0: Brucking Bonte?
1: A fucking Bronte. Man, try to say that fucking five times fast. I
0: No, I won't.
1: Fucking Bronte. Fucking Bronte. Fucking <laughs> Bronte. Fucking Bronte. Fucking Bronte.
0: I'm so glad we did this.
1: <laughs> this podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit BraintrustBros.com.